0: Welcome to La Vida Las Vegas podcast. We're two physical therapists living the life in Las Vegas. I'm Dr. Erica.
1: And I'm Dr. Joe. We created this podcast for two reasons. First, to connect the healthcare, wellness, and fitness communities in Las Vegas. And second, to highlight all the amazing people we've
0: met along the way. Thank you for listening. And remember to take care of yourself.
2: Welcome to the show. Hey guys, and I'm super excited to be here. Uh, we've been talking about doing this for like a year, and it's pretty cool after about a, a year, and uh, seeing you start this thing up, and almost 50 episodes later, so congrats. Thank Really you. appreciate it. And uh, so if you want to introduce yourself to our audience, tell us what you do. Yep. Uh, my name's Eric Gorney. I'm a Lieutenant Colonel in the United States Air Force. I was uh, honored to be part of the Thunderbirds previously, and just finished up my command tour with the 64th Aggressor Squadron here at Nellis Air Force Base. So it's been an absolute honor to be to be a part of the enterprise here and do a lot of really high end training and spread the the mission and the focus of the Air Force uh, as well as prepare people for uh, future conflict. So, uh, but unfortunately that's coming to an end. So the we're out of the house, the car's packed up. You know, about to sell the other car and we start driving to Washington D.C. on Monday. Uh, excited to to serve along with my family, with uh, my wife Jen and two boys, Jason Bryce. Very cool. And today was actually your literal last day, right? Uh, pretty m- Yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. we did the change of command uh, yesterday. And then today is, is literally my first day of freedom uh, in about four years. But I mean, that's short lived because we just move on to the next assignment and start over and keep going. So what initially brought you to Vegas? It was the military assignment. So we were in Hawaii uh, and then looking for what the next chapter was going to be and applied to be a part of the Thunderbirds. And Uh, so lucky and fortunate for that to work out so we came out for that assignment uh, to get back in the f-16 be a part of that community uh, with the team there and then and lucky enough to be able to stay for the command assignment here so what did you do while you were here uh we we did a lot of flying uh, a lot of training a lot of work uh, but then we also had a lot of fun too my kids really grew up and and like a lot of your guests would say, you come here and you don't expect that much out of Vegas. Like you just know about the strip and you know about gambling and, and going out and having fun down there. But there's really so much to offer. Uh, we had a ton of fun outside, uh, fell in love with Midway, Utah, for example, just south of Park City up there and getting out and, and enjoying some time with the kids. But uh, we've been super impressed with Vegas overall, and hopefully we'll
1: be able to come back. Very cool. And what'd you do for your previous job? Because uh, you have the word aggressor in your uh, in the title. What does that mean? That's right. So that's just one of many squadrons in the Air
2: Force, right, that have different kinds of missions and different mission sets. So it, it all started uh, back in um, 1999, really, graduating from high school, applied for the Air Force Academy, didn't make it in my first year. So I uh, committed to, to being a little bit better applicant the next year around, uh, and then uh, fortunate to to be selected for that, so went to the Air Force Academy in two thousand and graduated in two thousand four, and then a uh, little bit extra school after that, and then started the adventure with pilot training. So you go through the entire flow of pilot training, figure out what jet you're going to fly, and then go to training for that jet, and then you go to your first assignment. Um, and then so as part of all that, I met Jen, uh, and then we were assigned together in South Carolina. Uh, and then the short of the history uh, on the assignments here was we were let's see South Carolina uh, Phoenix, Hawaii, and then here to Vegas. So, uh, haven't really gotten to see the world outside of, you know, Iraq and Libya and a a short stint in Italy and and Korea, but, um, got to see a lot of the United States. That's cool. Not bad. How do you know what jet you're going to fly? It all depends on the track selection program that we go through. So, uh, the way pilot training starts out, and, and it's changing a little bit right now, especially as we bring in more virtual reality, AR type solutions to help improve training. But uh, first, you go to pilot training, uh, and it's called undergraduate pilot training, or UPT, and you'll go into the initial trainer, which we use the T six, which is a two seat propeller uh, trainer aircraft. So you'll start out in that, and then at the end of the T6 phase of UPT, you'll put in your preferences, and this is pretty much how everything in, in the Air Force works, is you put in your preferences, and you know someone matches it up based on some sort of performance metrics on how you're doing your class rank or whatever, uh, and then you figure out what you're going to get. So out of that T6 training, you track to either a, a fighter bomber or to a, a cargo or a heavy track, so like our tankers and things like that, or you can go helicopters as well. Um, so after you fly the T-6, if you um, request to go to fighters, then you would go fly the T-38, uh, which is a, a supersonic um, afterburning twin engine trainer. Um, still, still pretty capable, but super old, like 1950s airplane, um, but they're still, they're still cranking. Eventually that'll be replaced by the new T-7, but that's still a couple years away um, uh, for a cool new trainer aircraft there. And then once you finish up the T-38 or the jet trainer phase of that, again, you put in your preferences. I want to fly an A-10. I want to fly an F-16. I want to fly an F-15, F-22, F-35, whatever you want to fly. You put those in and then, um, you have a pretty, a pretty big celebration night. We call it drop night where, where those assignments drop. Uh, and then you find out what you're going to fly.
1: So whatever you get assigned, like that's what you're flying the rest of the time that's that you're in it. the Air Force? Yeah, yeah. And
2: no, people don't change from that? You can, you can switch back and forth a little bit, but hmm. it's it, it's not as common as it used to be way back uh, because it takes time and money to send you through a course. I mean, we're investing money to, to train you up with knowledge on that aircraft. So usually it has to be for a pretty good reason. We've transitioned a lot of people into the f 35 uh, because that's the, the newest airplane, and we're spinning people up, um, but we're we're starting to bring more and more people up in the F thirty uh, five specifically. So there's a little bit less transition, uh, but no, unless you unless you're switching jobs, you get up into higher rank, and you're switching jobs where you're going to be you know a commander of of a unit that has this airplane, then you might switch. But that's usually a pretty fast transition course without a whole lot of um, like uh, uh, extra tactical training in there.
0: Is there so when you are deciding which preference, you don't get to like try on a shoe, you know, and go try it out and like check out like oh like I like this about it. So how how is it that you choose between your preferences?
2: Yeah, yeah, you don't know, you definitely don't get to go test drive uh, all the different airplanes, <laughs> which would be cool. Um, I mean, you could get in the simulator, but I mean you don't even have them at the pilot training base, right? So you you, you don't even have access to it. You have access to people who flew those things, which is the closest uh, that you're gonna get. So uh, most most cadets Air Force ROTC or, or people coming up in the, in the um, training pipeline usually get a chance to go out and experience. Uh, a real Air Force base so as part of a formal program or a summer program you'll be able to go out to a base like Nellis and interact with the different squadrons Um, and this isn't even for flying like you'll get to do this if you want to be in civil engineering or work in personnel or work in finance or uh, maintenance for example so you get a chance to go out and kind of see what that's like Uh, and then a lot of people get a chance to fly in the back seat of uh, a jet that it has, has a two-seat variant that you can you can jump in the back of, so an F-15 uh, or an F-16. Um, but otherwise, you're just leaning on those experiences or talking to people. Um, so your instructors who are like, oh, yeah, I flew this, it was awesome, and um, that's pretty much how you end up uh, defining your path. Uh, so did you get the preference that you had? Uh, I did. I did want to fly F-16s and, and super lucky to actually get that. Yeah, because it's like you said, I mean, that really, that moment determines the rest of your career unless you apply to change or go to something different. Uh, and, and sometimes guys get things they definitely don't want either based on location or, uh, you know, like, Hey, I want to fly anything that's not remotely piloted, but we still need remotely piloted, uh, vehicle pilots to get out there and do the real work that, that those do. So, um, sometimes there's assignments that are less desirable and, and, and people still end up with them.
1: I'm sure. So what did you do
2: specifically then when you flew your jet? Yep, so just walking through all those different assignments really quick. Always in the F-16 for me, so I haven't transitioned, but um, for any of the, the listeners out there who want to go back and, and learn more about the F-35, definitely check out El Gato, Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Frank's podcast there because that was pretty cool to listen. He really focused on uh, the discussion with you guys on fighter pilot culture and and the incredible capabilities of the F-35, so I don't know if I'll get a chance to fly that. Um, I'm pre- I'm pretty old guy in the F-16 now, um, so it'll be it'll be tricky to transition over. But uh, each of my assignments have kind of had a, a little bit of a different flow to them. So the first one in South Carolina was a, was a, a frontline operational assignment. So uh, we flew what we call Block 50 F-16s, which focus on suppression of enemy air defenses, where we're taking out bad guys' surface-to-air missile systems, uh, primarily, you're still trained and capable of dropping bombs and fighting air to air, but we're trying to protect all the other players primarily from from the surface threats that are out there. Uh, so we deployed. Uh, we went to uh, Iraq, went to Korea, and then uh, also flew out of northern Italy to go down to Libya. So actual combat uh, during that assignment and those three different uh, three different deployments. And then after that when we went to Phoenix I went to be an instructor at our F16 schoolhouse so that's where we took brand new people out of pilot training and then turned them into F16 pilots. So that was super cool, rewarding. You're just you're running through kind of the baseline F16 mission sets and and okay, you know how to fly an airplane, now we're going to teach you how to employ the airplane uh, because very 10%, 5% of our focus on a mission is the what we call goings and comings, like taking off, landing, departure, recovery, all the things that people kind of normally associate with flying because that's what you're doing on a commercial airliner is just getting from point A to point B. Uh, But for us, it's everything that happens in between takeoff and landing uh, where we're focused on employing the weapon system uh, to the maximum capabilities to achieve national security objectives. So uh, it it was pretty cool to be a part of, of training those guys from the beginning. Uh, then we went and did the normal school staff developmental thing. So the air force does try to take care of people the best we can and send you off to do some rehabilitative, uh, time and training and rest and recovery. And then came back. And then of course with the Thunderbirds we were doing, Doing the air shows and recruiting, retaining, and inspiring as many Americans as we could. And then finally, on the aggressor side, pretty unique mission set. So it was it an was incredible experience to be in charge of the squadron who provides all of the bad guy support, right? We're the professional adversaries for uh, the high-end training that happens here at Nellis and all the exercises in the weapons school. So what do you mean when you say that you're the bad guy? Yep, so we will go up and replicate enemy air systems. So if it's going to be a bad guy Russian airplane, a bad guy Chinese airplane, you know we're going to say, today we are this version with this missile with these capabilities, and then here's our game plan, uh, because we want we want the weapon school and the people that are in town for the big high-end exercises to be able to have the most realistic training. And if we just trained what we call the good guys or the blue tactics— against other people just flying similar blue tactics, then it's almost like a confirmation bias. I'm like, oh, yeah, our stuff's working because you did exactly what we told you to do to prove that our stuff's working. So we come up with our own organic, uh, intelligence-informed, realistic threat representation to say this is what we think a potential enemy is going to do, and then we provide that scenario. So it's
1: really more about just acting like the enemy, but you can't really, like, replicate their weapon systems or anything like that. Right.
2: Yeah. So that's a challenge and that's, it, it's difficult because we can't go by the actual system. Right. Uh, and, and, but we're moving, we're moving forward in that arena right now. So we're transitioning a lot of our support to contractors who are able to outside of government channels, uh, be able to build systems that can replicate uh, the enemy systems a little bit more accurately, a little bit more cheaply, and, and then provide a little bit higher level of realism. Um, but we're still kind of the core so what of the application of some of our intelligence training to what it does to the operators. So, uh that part's pretty rewarding to be able to see that.
0: So it's kinda of like a you know, if in a movie you play a character and does that feel like when when you're up in the air with your you know, you're the aggressor and you're the, the bad guy, but you know, in, in your regular life are you like normal people like yeah when you talk d- to definitely people. just normal people
2: yeah yeah we don't put on any like uh furry hats and call each other ivan and boris or anything when we're <laughs> airborne but um close one call sign like that but uh no just normal people um but but part of the advantage is everyone came from the blue side if you will right they came from the blue tactics and then now we're learning what the enemy can do but we have the knowledge of what our team is going to do so that we can help uh identify those weaknesses and, and be the best we can
1: but that also makes it kind of difficult too, because then you already have like an understanding of what, like you said, the blue side is going to do. But you're trying to replicate the enemy, but they may or may not have access to that same information, especially the level that you have. So you, do you have to sometimes pretend certain times that it's maybe they wouldn't know everything about it?
2: Yeah, and so it actually sense. goes both ways. Yeah. Yep. So we're like, okay, we hopefully they don't know about this thing, so let's try to do that, uh, or we just assume they know everything. Or uh, the reverse of that is we are trying to replicate based on what we think they would do, but we also have no real idea. We're like, okay, well, we're pretty sure they would do this and use their airplane in this system this way, and and, and we're making guesses too because uh, the intelligence is pretty difficult, uh, of course, nowadays to, to really exploit.
1: So did you know from when you were a kid, you're like, I'm definitely going to be a pilot. This is the thing I want to do. I watch Top Gun. Like, I'm ready for this.
2: It, Top Gun wasn't super formative, I mean great movie, uh you know, Iron Eagle's a close second, uh and then they kept trying but it, it, uh it, I was definitely interested in technology and I think it started out with wanting to be an astronaut. I remember like, yeah okay, and then I so then when I figured out what you have to do to be an astronaut, a lot of people go to the military, become a test pilot, and then like seven consecutive miracles later, like maybe you can be an astronaut. Uh, so it kind of started that way and what drove me down the path. I still remember seeing pictures of F-16s, though, when I was a little bit younger. I'm like, man, that, that's a cool-looking airplane. So uh, if that could be a part of it, that'd be neat.
0: So speaking about, like, commercial versus, like, regular flying, so you know how you mentioned, like, that's only a small portion of what you review when you're looking at things? Is there, Are there things that maybe that you'd be surprised, like how – those are similar or maybe how different they are in, in like a commercial setting as a pilot to a, like the military. Obviously, you have like more capabilities and it might go faster or fuel, like things that maybe people don't know about.
2: In yeah. I, yeah. I think that's that's probably it right there is the speed and the fuel consumption piece. So when we're just flying around, we're not actually flying any faster than uh, than a commercial airliner. Um, so they're not going supersonic of course, cause they're flying over America and, and you know, the, the planes are pretty big and not supersonic capable, but, uh, and there are times that we're going to haul the mail as quickly as we can to get from one side to the other and surprise the enemy or whatever. But, um, if we were just to go as fast as we could, you'd be out of gas in like 15 minutes, uh, in an F-16. So we don't really have, um, the capability to, 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 to go Long distances at super high speeds. So if we're just flying from point A to point B, like with the Thunderbirds, and we're flying across the country, we're just cruising at you know what we would call point eight five Mach or point eight Mach, which is roughly about uh, five hundred or so knots of ground speed. So relative to how fast we're going across the ground, probably about five hundred knots or so, depending on the wind and what's going on. An airliner is going to be actually six hundred to seven hundred knots. Uh, across the ground because they can get a little bit higher uh, as well. So we normally fly in the mid uh, 20s. So 20,000 to 30,000 feet, just a good comfortable place for the F-16. And then the airliners are going to be, you know, above 30,000 feet, maybe even 40,000 feet where there's just a little bit less drag. uh, And they can fly a little bit more fuel efficiently and a little bit faster.
0: Can you talk about what those levels of elevation mean too because i was talking to a pilot and he was teaching us like mostly that it's like highways like kind of like a, an imaginary highway if you will mm-hmm. could you elaborate a yep little exactly about that?
2: so that yeah the, the national airspace system is set up uh depending on evens and odds of thousands of feet so above certain altitudes uh they reduce that down and then you've got a thousand feet of separation so we say uh west is best east is or uh yeah, west is best and east is least, or whatever. But so anyway, if you're going uh, to the uh, if you're going to the east, you're going to fly odd number altitudes, and if you're going to the west, you're going to fly even number altitudes. So for example, twenty six thousand feet if you're going to go to the east, and twenty eight or sorry, twenty seven thousand feet if you're going to be um, uh, coming back the other way. Uh, so and then you mix in a couple of other different. Uh, types of flying in there too, that you only separate by 500 feet. And this would be what people would consider the difference between like VFR or IFR, which is visual flight rules or instrument flight rules. So if you're under instrument flight rules, then you're flying under the control of an air traffic control facility. And so they can accept a little bit more, um, a little bit more reduced separation. And then for the, uh, visual flight rules, then you're just kind of flying around seeing and avoiding and looking out for other traffic or terrain. Uh, and then if you're flying VFR, uh, below 18,000 feet is the cap on that. Then you fly at those altitudes plus 500 feet um, so that you're kind of in the middle. So if you could think about uh, a stadium view, looking at the airspace from the side, like uh, there could be an airplane every 500 feet of uh, of elevation.
0: And those those types of planes are just like, you know, those like... Blimps that you see, or something yeah, like that. it on, could right? be,
2: yeah, Cessnas to to commercial airliners to, you know, fancy doctors with twin engine, you know, whatever running up to Lake Tahoe, mm-hmm. okay. who sometimes fly right through the middle of our airspace. Yeah.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah. Huh. So, as far as uh, the way that they have it divided up, like, is it, if you're in the Air Force, you still have to do the same thing, like figure out a flight plan and do all that anytime you go in the air? Like, is it the same rules that anyone would have to follow that's using the airspace? Pretty
2: much. We, we divide most of the flying up into two different
1: broad categories. One would be
2: local area flying, and then one would be cross-country. So if you're flying local area, i.e. out of Nellis, going up to our training range, then those flight plans are all pretty much canned. You just you, you file a, a number. You're like, hey, I want flight plan 104 or whatever the number is, and they're like, okay, cool, we know what that is. Because you're just taking off, going to the airspace, executing the mission, coming back. And if you're not flying in the local area and you're going cross-country, then you would do exactly the normal process that uh, that any other
1: airplane or commercial airliner would do. Mm-hmm. So as you've been going throughout your career, even though you're flying something that is a little bit older, I'm sure technology has been increasing like this whole time. Uh, so what are some of the advances that you've seen and like how have you been able to like integrate those or maybe just interesting ways of trying to pair things up as you went along?
2: Yeah, it's been pretty incredible to see... Uh, human ingenuity and, and our ability to continue to drive and advance, especially with technology and, and combining that with some pretty old platforms. Um, so we're getting better now about just making a platform and then adding things to it, recognizing that modularity is, is pretty helpful. Uh, but in, the F-16 was developed in the, in the 70s and then fielded in the, in the early to mid-80s, uh, and those are, those are old planes. Those are old airplanes. And then the B-52 is coming up on like 60 years of operation. That one, you know, the T-38 is over 50 years old. So uh, we're finding out that we can make things that last pretty well, but the the adding the technology piece is difficult because we start running out of bandwidth on the the network that's in the computer and the computers are too slow. Uh, so it that part's challenging. Uh but eventually, when we when we figure out a technology that's going to work, and we're like, this is what we need to do to the airplane, then then we go in, we we swap it out, take them up to our depot location at uh, in Salt Lake City, and they uh, provide the update to them. But it's just a matter of, of funding and prioritization
1: and being able to get those upgrades complete. So if you're like, all right, I really need this iPhone to have Bluetooth connectivity so I yeah. can listen to my playlist as I'm flying around here. Yeah. That's where you would go to get that That's done. nice, yeah.
2: If we could just get a you know phone charger, that would be good. But, <laughs> I mean, you can see there's there's tons of commercial off-the-shelf solutions that are starting to work in. We we fly with iPads, and, and all hmm. of our flight pubs at least are all electronic now. We've got maps on there, and all that part's pretty nice. But as far as the, the weapon system parts go, it, it takes – it takes years to be able to get uh, the developments going on that. And and we've pushed a lot of the the older platforms as, as far as we can, and then that's where you eventually get to a generational leap. So the F-16 with the F-15 are considered uh, fourth-generation fighters, and then the F-35 and the F-22 are considered fifth-generation fighters because we just recognize that, it's, it's literally cheaper to build a new generation of airplane than to try to turn the f-16 into something that it can't be hmm. uh, and then you know popularized in the media right now is a discussion about our, our future sixth generation fighter which uh, you know nobody really knows anything about yet except that it's gonna be pretty awesome. So they're currently on fifth gen right now that's right yeah so we're, yeah we're still our, our fourth gen fleet is still is still the, the workers. I think doing, doing most of the, the kind of heavy lifting, if you will. And then, uh, the fifth gen is, is, uh, they're certainly still involved in, in modern conflict and and doing incredible work out there too. But they're the ones who are a little bit in reserve in case, you know, something really kicks off and we need our, our top end capability available. Uh, that's where we have the fifth gen players.
1: And how, how long has it been on fifth gen? Like the, what was it? The F yeah, said? Yeah.
2: Yep. So the F twenty two is the first fifth generation okay. fighter, uh, and the F twenty two came out in the early two thousands. So we've we've had the fifth gen for about twenty almost twenty years.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So is uh, when you say they make these big leaps? Is it is it really just when it gets to a point when it's too expensive to upgrade the technology, and that's when it's time to do this new generational thing or is it more like we know every 20 years that's probably when that's going to happen anyways
2: it's probably a combination of that you always have to be in a development cycle because i mean look at how long it takes to to acquire something uh, of that size and magnitude the f-35 they switched around a little bit to try to shorten the, the acquisition timeline to have some operational test involved uh while they're also still developing the airplane a little bit. So developmental tests and operational tests kind of working a little bit closer together instead of being perfectly sequential. Uh, so that's helped a little, but you always have to be working on the next thing because it takes so long to get there. Uh, so yeah, they're already working on sixth generation. I mean, who knows? Someone's probably thinking about, you know, whatever the next one going to be. And uh, But yeah, you get to the point where the the platform, the structure has to change so substantially that it just doesn't make sense or you can't, like you physically can't make the F-16, uh, a fifth generation, for example.
1: So they'd come to the current pilots and they ask you like, Hey, what are the limits of the capabilities of technology you're currently using? Like what are things you'd want to try and implement or develop? Like they take a lot of pilots into account or no?
2: Yep. Yep. We have, uh, certain, certain squadrons that focus specifically on that we call it operational test. Um, so we have a couple of those here, um, a couple in Florida, that really focus on trying to make everything in the airplane better, uh, make it work better, make it fit better, make it perform better, um, make it easier to interact with uh, from a, a human standpoint. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're purely focused on that because we know that the capabilities are everything. So it's uh, we're con- continually driving to make uh, taxpayer money go as far as possible.
1: At least some branches of the government do that. Yeah, awesome. right, right. yeah, we're trying. It's,
2: it's not <laughs> yeah. always the best, and it still takes a long time. And you know, it might be the it might be the lowest bidder, but it's still a pretty high price tag when you're talking, you know, thirty million dollars for an F $150 dollars for an F thirty five. Yeah.
1: Hmm. So when you were flying, then uh, you knew that you wanted to be on the aggressor squadron, like you wanted to be one of the bad guys. I, I, I was definitely uh,
2: interested when I first came to Nellis and was part of the Thunderbirds because we're, we're parked right next to each other on the rows out there. And I'm like, man, if I had a chance, that would be pretty cool to just go next door and be a part of the aggressor mission because it's a pretty unique uh, squadron. There's there's one other named uh, the 18th Aggressors up in Alaska, um, but the 64th here at Nellis but with those two squadrons, that's pretty much it. The only ones that focus on, on this side of the mission, so... Uh, it was pretty cool to go from one neat painted airplane to another neat plane airplane. Cause you know, all the other ones are just plain gray, but the aggressors have a bunch of cool painted graphics so that you can visually identify them as a bad guy. Uh, and then like a uh,
1: unicorn or something. Yes. Yeah.
2: Well, yes. That was going to be the next one, but it lost out on voting, you know, <laughs> to like an all plain black one, which was pretty cool looking. Yeah. But, uh, uh, we'll see. Maybe it'll make it in the next,
1: the next batch. Fingers crossed. Yeah.
0: So what was your experience like being, uh, Thunderbird and you said like the mission is to inspire kind of young young Americans to be part of the military like, can you tell us a little bit more about that
2: yeah that was absolutely a humbling and incredible experience to be able to represent the Air Force which is definitely taken care of my family of course Jen was prior active duty uh, now reservist as well so um we've been able to share that together and it was not necessarily like oh hey this is our chance to give back just a chance to do that mission which again was was pretty unique and different so the squadron itself is is incredible it the way our our organizations are set up we have a wing and then the wing is broken down into groups and there's all these different functional areas like okay we have this group of people you know doing the operations the maintenance and then all the support which includes the personnel finance uh, all the building infrastructure all that stuff Um, but the Thunderbirds 130 person squadron which is about four times bigger than a normal fighter squadron has all of those functions in one organization which is incredibly cool because you can get stuff done anywhere any place on the road uh and it's efficient and i think it really shows like the way we we could get some things done which is pretty cool and then also in normal fighter squadrons it's usually anywhere from 20 to 30 uh uh, officers who you know are all doing the same thing everyone's a pilot you have a couple of support personnel assigned but in the uh In the Thunderbirds, you have 130 people uh, and you have 12 officers, the numbered Thunderbirds, 1 through 12, and that's it. So the entire rest of the squadron are enlisted members, which is so cool to be able to interact and and see them, especially at the top of their game. So just to be able to have the the experience and the exposure to so many different parts of the Air Force, uh, that was pretty rewarding as well. And then, of course, when we got on the road, it was just it was unbelievable. To be able to go out and do the air shows, to fly all over the place, and to think about, like, we pick up the, the squadron with a C-17 of equipment. We fly six, seven, eight jets uh, to the east coast. We meet up with a tanker. you la- We land, we set up the air show, and then we integrate with, this, uh, with whatever the air show is at whatever location. Completely different air show setup, different airfield, different runways, different sight picture. Is it flat plains? Is it over the water? Is it uh, mountainous? Like what's going on here? And it really, it really shows the capabilities of the Air Force when you put all those little mission elements together to uh, to get from point A to point B with all of our people and stuff and the airplanes and be able to execute this pretty incredible show, just in you know at location X with having practiced like one time. And you're like, okay, guys, we'll just watch out for that mountain over there, and then good luck. Um, and then the the last part was was really being able to interact with uh, America, especially young America and the kids out there, because it maybe it just takes one interaction to drive them to something, and and even if and even if it isn't, it doesn't work out to be a, a fighter pilot, for example, or whatever. But um, we can we can set them on a motivating path, or we can. Help them just be a little bit better version of themselves, or even just get into the military, for example, and be like, oh, turns out I really want to do this thing. Uh, that, that's still a win in our book, even if it's not necessarily turning, you know, 100,000 people into pilots by tomorrow.
1: Over the break, we were talking about a, the new car prospect for you. You want to go through that with us? <laughs> yeah, so the
2: military moving process is
1: uh, fun, but
2: frustrating because it's a chance to kind of refresh your life. You know, if you're going overseas, you may be like, okay, sell the RV, sell the whatever. We're going over here, and it, it makes you go through your stuff, and then it also makes you realize that you have a lot of stuff you've never used. You're like, we've moved three times and never opened that box, so it must be important. Um, but, yeah, an opportunity to take a look at new cars as well. Um, we were chatting about Tesla there, and and I haven't bought a new car in quite a while because we were in Hawaii, and uh, and we got the sweet minivan, which was great, and just driving uh, Jen's old foreigner um and i sold my truck back when we left phoenix uh which was um that thing was great but that was my original car so yeah, i was all over the place with looking for a new car cuz i'm like okay i'm going go to go dc let's let's get something cool it's going to be you know economical easy to drive around okay if it gets you know a little beat up in the city or whatever and i was everywhere from like small truck to a camry to like a Luxury car I could take to the or like a sport like a small luxury sports sedan like a G seventy or a, um, like a Alfa Romeo julia or something I could take to the track and I was like man this would be great and then we circle back around in Tesla uh, which like we were talking about just so impressive to see the company you can tell all the other auto manufacturers are just taking their existing cars and then making them electric vehicles. Whereas Tesla and the new EV players, are, they started with a new car and then built it. And so you can see the integration of technology in there. So whether it's the, the, the recording of your driving to sell you insurance or the sensing of your seat or just the, the cool technology that's in that, we're, uh, we're looking forward to, to that new ride.
1: Is that what made you go with the Tesla with just the amount of technology and how that appeals to maybe how you normally look at your stuff in your job and
2: I think so. I think it makes you more aware of that and those functions where you're like, yeah, why doesn't my car do all this other stuff that this one does? And it starts making sense. And then that's what we talked about with everyone that had that had one previous was even if you took away the electrical vehicle from the Tesla and it was gas powered, the technology and the way the car does things and just works better nah, is worth is worth driving one. So uh, we'll see the, the whole experience is pretty cool uh it's you can accidentally buy a tesla on your phone like so you just go in you like click the five different options what trim do you want interior color exterior color what wheels do you want the full self-drive put your hundred dollar deposit down and then and then that's it like you've ordered a car
0: it's a hundred dollars for a deposit
2: yeah that's it to actually put your order in yeah and then like a week out from delivery they send you the email and it It's like, hey, your car's going to be ready next week. You know, click over here, fill out your registration data and pay us your money. And if you're in an area that they offer delivery service, they will just bring you your car and text you like go into your app and you can open the car with
1: your phone. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. What do you do for getting that power thing put in your home? You'd have to probably coordinate that somehow.
2: Yeah. You got a couple different options for that. You can plug it into a normal one ten outlet. It just charges really slow, like the equivalent of four miles of range an hour, uh, which oh, would be, wow. would be tough for anybody unless you're just literally driving a couple miles a day. Uh, but if you get plugged in overnight, you can get some range on that. Uh, but if you just get a normal, like 230 volt RV or like a dryer plug put in, uh, usually they just have to, to, set up a new electrical box uh there with the higher amperage circuit and you just need that plug and you plug the car in uh into that it comes with the charger and everything or you can get the the actual tesla wall connector the the charger that is kind of purpose built and then that's the one that will charge your car from you know zero to a hundred percent in like six hours or so hmm, mm-hmm. that's
1: It's pretty impressive. I'm sure it's quite a a buying process too, as you're like looking through all the features that it has, and like you said, you're like, why does why does my car not have this already? It's amazing. Yeah,
2: Yeah, and this part's pretty. It's like here's your options. That's it. Like what colors do you want? Otherwise, everything's the same. And as we were talking, everything updates over the air. And there's no buttons or switches in the thing other than just on the one on the one main display. There's no at least on a Model Three. There's no instrument cluster. Like everything is on
1: the screen it's pretty amazing the um i think he said that they initially had tried to base that off of existing cars like you were saying and that he i forget what percent it is but it's really small but they're actually able to use of existing cars and they pretty much had to develop everything on their own mm-hmm.
2: yeah and then from the maintenance side uh looking forward to no more oil changes and you know it's just it's it's got steering components and suspension components and then the batteries and the and the motors so it's it's pretty cool to see us going in the right direction with that.
1: Yeah, I think they said the only maintenance you really do is tires.
2: Yep. Yeah, you don't even use the brakes because it's got regenerative braking.
1: So I think the biggest thing
2: when we test drove, I'm like, oh, man, I don't like this. But one, the performance is incredible. But two, it, it's not really a gas pedal, right? It's it's You push it to go, and then you just push less to go slower. So you can't just let your foot off the the pedal because then – the motors turn into generators, and it, it uses all of that deceleration to recharge the batteries, which is why they do much better in city driving than highway driving, because you regain a lot of that energy as you're slowing down. Uh, but it's pretty aggressive. like it, it throws you forward, Like how quickly those things uh, can slow you down. So you don't ever actually use the brakes except to hold the car stopped at, at a stoplight, which... I think it has an option to do it itself, too. I was going to say, I yeah, think it, it does. does it, right? I think it That's tells you when say. the light turns green. It's Yeah, it's silly.
1: Yeah, Rogan was talking about on his show, and he said that uh, they accelerate so fast that if you're at a green light, by the time you cross the intersection, you could already be going 60 miles an hour, which is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's almost, like, too fast. Like, if someone <laughs> jumps out in front of you, like, I don't know. Although the car probably already accounts for that. Too, yeah, I don't so. know oh when goodness. you need to go that <laughs> fast. They're, yeah,
2: they're they're trying to get them to be a little bit more track capable too, but they there's some overheating issues. But the yeah, the new Model S, especially the high performance Plaid, it, that's like 1.99 seconds zero to sixty. Even a Model Three Performance gets you there in 3.2 or 3.4 or whatever, which is insanely fast. I mean, like a brand new Corvette C8, it's like 2.9 seconds.
1: So it's it's fast. It's it's pretty impressive. So, what's something that you've learned that you wish you knew sooner?
2: Yeah, that one uh, was fun to kind of think about overall, and I, I think uh, I think it's the the well, one. I never really this may sound silly like I never really thought about personal development or learning or you know being able to make yourself a little bit better as as a thing until probably five or six years ago. So I was in my first break from flying when we were in Hawaii and and had some mentors and great people to talk to you there, where uh, like, hey, man, you need to like, check out these books and read this and listen to this podcast. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I haven't really done any of those things to so, like, start to think critically and, and develop my own way of thinking or or even realize that you're in charge of shaping that. Um, So I think a lot of people just kind of go through the motions and just accept the things that, that they're taught or the things they see as the way they are. But there's a whole part of that where you can – Uh, you can be in charge of of your own way. So I think the recognition of that um, earlier would would certainly be better because then you you just have more time to read books and and listen to other smart people who have already learned all their things. Uh, But I think the biggest thing is what what I certainly struggle with and and try to work on every day, and that's the ability to say no. Uh, And whether it's finding work-life balance or whatever, or just putting first things first or or correct prioritization. I think it's just the recognition that we have a set human capacity. So whether that's time-based or whether that's people-based or however you want to look at it, uh on a daily basis like there's just a limit to the amount of stuff we can get done and i'm like all right well here i'm going to do this 1 hour project and fit it into this 15 minutes and i'm sure it's going to work out and of course it doesn't uh so i always end the to do the day with, the, with a to do list that's longer than i started but uh I think i'm trying to get better at that i think a good anecdote is the uh the Warren Buffett uh 5 uh 25 rule i think he calls it so Uh, Of course, the great investor, Warren Buffett, he says, make a list of the 25 things you want to do in your life, and then make sure you got the top five right, and then draw a line after uh, number five, and then focus on doing those five things, and then specifically focus on not doing the other 20 things, because they're going to get in the way uh, of getting those five things done. So that was uh, um, something cool to think about going forward, and especially as we start our, our next chapter here, and things get more crazy and more complex and the kids grow up and and life continues it'll be I think a narrowing down of things and and having to start saying no to stuff
0: definitely and what's something you commonly see whether it's in your career or just your life that you wish more people knew about
2: yeah for 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 this one I think it's a little bit of a changing still kind of philosophizing on this one a little bit but I get the sense that we're that we're moving away from a little bit of uh, self motivation. So I think partly because of of technology and social media and phones and distractions and 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 just a need to to kind of have less doership out there. But you can see it in, in a lot of different things that we do now that that people are moving away from being doers and active problem solvers and seeking out things that they can make better and fix to moving into this just assembly line robotic notification based passive workflow that I think we were kind of already getting to partly because of technology, but absolutely accelerated by COVID where everyone just kind of sits and is like, well, as soon as I hear the ding, then I need to go do something. Um, so, so the, the challenge there is, 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 to kind of regain some of that that doing mentality, I think, and and it kind of factors into the first part that we talked about there with with recognizing that you're in charge of your own life, um, and then hopefully we can get uh, a few more problem solvers out there.
1: That's good. I think that more people would need to realize that. I think that's very wise words. That in order for you to be able to solve a problem, you have to understand that you have the capability to make changes in that unto yourself. Uh, I think a lot of people now just look at every other environmental thing to say this is why i can't do this like oh it's too hot outside or it's too whatever uh, but then you see people getting stuff done regardless and i think that that's it shows you that's it's got to be possible somehow
2: yeah right on with that there's still a lot of you know systemic issues that that could be keeping people down for sure but um but being able to to rise above that and take control i think is the most important uh, recognition
0: yeah i love that list too of like the what you mentioned with Warren Buffett's thing is focusing on those things because I, I mean, I'm guilty of it too, of just like finding whatever's shiny or what you feel like doing. But if you're not focusing on those five things, you're not going towards your goals. So mm-hmm. I think it's a great point that you you, you bring up.
1: So what's something you've been working on, whether it's professionally, personally, physically, or mentally that you're excited about?
2: Yeah, excited about uh continuing the the fitness side of things that I started with you guys here. So um fitness was not a strong suit of mine coming up. Right. So it was not super active in high school. Uh, and then uh, at the academy, like, the first couple of years, just getting by on the bare minimums above the, the, the test score mins there. And then, uh, and then started getting active, but it was just beach body, you know, you know, trying, but uh chest and try back and by like no, no functional movements, you know, no, no legs, no squats. It, it hurt. And I didn't know how to do it. And all those standard things. So that led to a lot of problems transitioning to CrossFit and and getting started there. And of course, trying to keep up with Jen, who's, who's, you know, my CrossFit hero. So, uh, it's, then when I came in to see you guys and we started up like that really, I think put me on the right path to, again, that whole like taking control part and doing the work. Uh, I mean that, that factors into mobility and taking care of your body as well. So, uh, now with a little bit more time during the, the next assignment that we have, um, Looking forward to to kind of regaining some of that and transitioning back to a little bit more uh, fitness focus. I
0: love that.
1: And there, there's something that we haven't done yet with our other listeners, but well, we'll do this for you. This will be a, uh, a trial thing, so we're going to give you a soapbox moment. So we can let you anything that you think other people need to be to know about, or something that you just want to rant about. We'll give you your soapbox here. Oh man, I think I
2: think it probably would have been the previous. Um, I can stay with the fitness side of things, and and uh, you know the questions I was going to ask you guys about were what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you see. So this is definitely not soapboxing boxing uh, from a, a, a philosophy standpoint. Uh, that would have been some of the previous stuff there, but um, I think I think. The biggest thing that I've learned from you guys and and from the journey of functional fitness overall is it's pretty easy to go to YouTube and get a and get a PT degree right like hey I'm gonna watch these videos and figure out what's going on uh, and be able to do all these movements and and fix my body but uh, it's it's really not just about like okay I have a problem with external rotation so I'm just gonna smash my infraspinatus with a ball and like be good, or I'm just going to, you know, sit on my glute med and fix that. And I would go like, look and say, okay, that part hurts. Okay. That's that thing. Okay. I need to work on this thing. And that's not the way to, to, the way to do that at all. So, uh, if I can soapbox, any, any lessons learned from my perspective on the fitness side that echo the things that you teach as well, um, you know, that will be whether it's just referencing kelly starrett's early stuff or not but a test retest mentality where like if you test and you identify your limitation and then you do the fix and then you retest and if it's not better then you're not fixing the right thing so uh uh dr aaron horshag on instagram from squat university pretty cool resource as well he'll tell you like if you're doing 10 minutes of Of foam rolling like you're not you're not doing anything like do something else for those 10 minutes uh or you know do two minutes of that and move on and then the other important concept would be to uh and it's kind of redundant but mobilize the movement right like you're not just gonna don't just work on your tfl like do you have hip internal rotation issues or external rotation issues like focus on the movement not on on the actual uh muscle or joint there
0: i love that that's great i think uh, you summed those things up greatly of what I wish people knew as well. Yeah, Make sure you don't want to stay and help us treat patients. Yeah, well, you <laughs> have to do the work, right? That's the hardest thing.
2: Like, you, you, uh, we started up a cool new program on base. Uh, and of course, it has to have a ridiculous acronym and a silly name, but it's called Optimizing the Human Weapons System, OHWS. Uh, where we have now funded athletic trainers, strength trainers, and massage therapists that are accessible to air crew. Because we recognize that pulling high G's and, and putting your body through that uh, and sometimes not having the time to, to take care of, uh, of yourself there um, from a, a functional or mobility standpoint is, is forcing people to either not be able to fly anymore because they're broken or to retire or decide to go do something else. So from a, a retention standpoint, they talked about, hey, we could fund – this this uh, contract for the equivalent of like 7500 bucks of uh, uh, an aircrew member um, and it costs like 20 million dollars to make over the course of 18 to 20 years to to make a fighter pilot so um, it's a pretty pretty simple return on investment um, and it's been great to have that kind of access and, and really a, a fundamental shift to hey hey guys we do have to take care of ourselves and here's a good way to do that
0: I love that. And I, I, I look at it at the way I look at our healthcare system. And I think that's a really great way to look at it In your investment on a daily basis or weekly or monthly basis of taking care of yourself can save you probably $100,000 because of the cost of insulin, the cost of hospital stays, medications, uh, you know, eliquis. like those are all really expensive drugs. And that's what we you typically see right now in people in their sixties, seventies, eighties. Those are the drugs that people are having to take on a daily basis. So, I think that's a a great analogy to our current health and status of people not necessarily taking care of themselves.
2: Yeah, yeah, that would probably be the true like soapbox topic. Is you got you got to take care of yourself because, uh, yeah, it's it's difficult to justify, um. The freeloading and putting everybody else on on the dime just because
1: uh, food tastes good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
2: food does taste good. Food
1: yeah. does taste good. Yeah. So, what do you want to leave the listeners with?
2: Well, let me think about. Uh, the, he's all my really super good talking points here um, already, but uh, you know, f- for me, it was the Air Force came along because I didn't really know what what I wanted to do. Uh, and this isn't going to turn into like a recruiting thing or anything like that, but uh, it just kind of shows you the way the way stuff works out, which is pretty cool. Um, like, truthfully, I, I went to the Air Force Academy because I heard it was a good school. I went and visited the campus, it was in Colorado Springs. And I like skiing. And, uh, you know, my mom's like, you can go to the school, it's super good, and it, it's free. And you just have to go in the Air Force. I and mean, we have no prior military experience in the family or anything like that. Uh, so, after being able to go experience it and check it out, Just kind of getting your foot in the door and having a little bit of structure um, around those formative years or whatever is is pretty huge. So, um, you know, what's the what's the the narrative or the storyline from that is? I, I think you just start just start doing stuff just start doing things and then see where that's going to lead you because uh if you're learning skills and you're improving yourself you'll be resilient you'll be adaptable and once you realize that you're in control and this is no longer what i want to do you can pivot with a good skill set to be able to do anything you want to do uh, uh personally happy that the military has worked
1: out it's been an honor to serve and we're looking forward to continue that for a little bit longer Outstanding. we really appreciate your time uh, we appreciate you being on the show today and uh I look forward to hearing what you have to do in the future.
2: Oh, thank you guys so much. Thanks for taking care of me as well. And congratulations on almost 50 episodes and then before long, hundred and catching up to old Joe Rogan. That's
1: right.
0: <laughs> Thanks Eric. Thank you guys.
1: We'd like to thank you for listening to La Vida Las Vegas podcast. We hope you enjoyed the time with our guests as much as we did. It would help us out so much. If you could share, subscribe, or review our podcast or any combination of the three. Thanks again, and remember to take care of yourself.